Let's open our Bibles, if you would, to 1 John chapter 5. And if you've had trouble before finding 1 John, I'm sure you're not having any trouble now. You should have a well-worn path in your Bible uh, to this book, and your Bible probably flops open to it and without much trouble. But we're looking at the final verses tonight, our final lesson in 1 John. So if you look at 1 John chapter 5, verse number 18, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself, and that wicked one toucheth him not. And we know that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in wickedness. And we know that the Son of God has come, and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ, this is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Tonight is our last message in 1 John, and we began May 24th, 2010, so we're just a little bit short or rather March 24th 2010 so we're just a little bit short of two years in this study and I have really dreaded coming to the end of this but I'm thankful that God has other places for us to go and when we are able to study another book we'll also find God has some rich things for us to learn from that now the ending of first John is a perfect ending John ends this letter much like we would want to do in a study like this that we would come to the end and most likely the last thing that we would talk about would be a summation of all the things that we've talked about previously. And that's what these final verses are in a sense. They are a summary and we are familiar with John's method by now that he uh, repeats himself often. Uh, We're no stranger to that repetitious manner in which John has gone about over and over again showing us which people are the true people of God and which ones are not. And John developed his arguments along three lines in this epistle, three tests. How do you prove that a person is a Christian? And perhaps more importantly, how do you prove that to yourself? And it's proved by your belief in the doctrines of the faith. It's proved by your morality. That would be the keeping of God's commandments. It's proved by uh, obedience to those commandments. And then it's also proved by a social test. And that is, do we love other people as Christ loves and as he has commanded? And this epistle is also a response to those that claimed Christianity, and yet they couldn't pass these tests. All three of these are essential because we can't mistake our doctrine of Christ and claim that we're saved. We can't miss the moral test and fail to obey God's commands and say that we're saved. We can't say that we are followers of Christ if we don't have his character, and that would be to love other people. God has given us new desires, a new outlook, and so we want to obey him. So we're not going to fail in the love that he commands us to have for other people. There are some people who would say that it's not right to make evaluations of others, that it's okay if we evaluate ourselves and look and see what, what's in our own hearts, but to try and evaluate someone else based upon what they do and to say that someone who has a different idea about Christ is not really a Christian, that would be wrong. And they would say to uh, say someone's not a Christian because of the way that they act, that that's not our responsibility to do that. To say that somebody is a, a Christian because they live an unholy lifestyle or they treat people in the wrong way, we're just not supposed to pass judgment. 
But I think that's wrong. It is biblical for us to judge certain things and uh, we have the criteria in the word of God that we do judge such things because if we don't, then we fill up the church with unbelievers, people that would... um, hurt or harm the uh, destroy the faith of others and so we have letters such as this that help us to discern those things and um, we we learn who are the false and who are the true and we have to know that in order to protect the people of God because we would have those that would want to destroy the gospel by teaching lies so the New Testament is filled with these warnings Uh, the Apostle Paul talked about this and and we'll get into this uh, in the next book that we study he talked about that people that don't that um, are enemies of the of the faith enemies of the cross of Christ and then uh, James talked about that and Peter talked about it and Jude talked about it so it's a common theme throughout the New Testament uh, that we have here that the these things that are written in order for the protection of the church and uh, there's much content in these letters of the New Testament to help us to detect a false Christianity. And in order to do that, we have to be sure of what we believe. And we have to be confident that the truth is concrete, that it's unalterable. We affirm certain absolutes that we know to be true. And I've heard people say to me, well, you think that you're right and your way is the only way. And that's pretty much right. I, I, I Only I would say that I think we're going Christ's way and we're following what he says is right and we're just reaffirming the things that have already been taught in the scriptures. Now, earlier this month, I had a person write to me and uh, ask about the banner out front, the church with uh, church without smoke and mirrors. And uh, I told you about this, that this person was concerned that we were referring to the incense that's used in Roman Catholic worship services and the Eastern Orthodox churches. And this lady asked me, are you publicly making a derisive statement about a beloved part of our Sunday services? And as I said, I hadn't actually thought of that when we made the banner, but I would say if the shoe fits, wear it. And we're not purposely trying to be offensive to people, but it's just that the truth of the gospel is that way. People are offended when you challenge them on beliefs that are not found in the scriptures. And uh, they don't think you have the right to do that, especially if you're going to do it publicly. But as we look at the teachings of Christ and the apostles, we can see Jesus was very public about teaching the truth. He was crucified for teaching the truth. And he stood up against the religious leaders whether they're, uh, and religious beliefs, whether they're Roman or whether they're wrong Jewish beliefs. He stood up against those, and, and he did it in a very public way. And the apostles did that. Uh, all of the apostles were martyred except the apostle John, and all of them stood for the truth, and, the, and, the, and doing it publicly was the reason that they were, they were killed. So we're not trying to be offensive to people, but at the same time, we do know that the truth of the gospel offends. And sometimes it infuriates people. And it will infuriate some to the point uh, that they have a type of rage that they're not satisfied unless they shed blood. And I find it quite ironic that a Roman Catholic would protest something, uh, some other person's doctrine as being unchristian and wrong to disparage their doctrine when Roman Catholicism killed more people over doctrine than all the people that have died in war since the world began. 
But that be as it may, John has most definitely given us information here about discerning the false from the true, and he's very anxious that we understand the difference in this. We understand it clearly. And so he repeats himself often here. He goes over it time and time again, and in the end of this letter, he closes with a summation of those same truths. Well, my intent is to finish tonight, so we do need to address the last point of these four messages, and we're discussing absolutes that we affirm. These are truths of the Christian faith that we will not compromise on. Uh, The real essence of Christianity is found in these truths, and we don't claim that what we read here at the end of 1 John is all that we affirm about the Christian faith, but as far as what John touches on, we affirm that this doctrine is true. So here are some things that we affirm in the first part here. We'll just briefly go over what we've already talked about, then we'll take up that third point. We affirm the source of our security. We have assurance that we are in the faith. Now, the first and second parts of the message confirmed that John taught that we are secure in Christ, and we believe that. We affirm it because there has been a change in desires in our heart. And we, we know that sin is inconsistent with our salvation because when we were saved, we were delivered from the power of sin. We don't desire to live in sin, and if sin is the habit of our lives, then we have no reason to think that we've truly been delivered. Uh, the Bible tells us here, John makes this clear, that Christ came to destroy the works of the devil. And it's Satan's work to keep people deceived, to tempt them to defy God, to disobey his commandments. But the purpose for Christ coming into the world was to live and die and to arise from the dead in order to set us free from the shackles of sin. And if that hasn't been accomplished, then Christ is a failure. But we know Christ can't fail because he's the omnipotent God. So Christ is successful, and therefore believers have conquered the tempter, and that's through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives within. Then we also know that falling is inconsistent with faith. That true faith is a sustaining faith. It's a victorious faith, an overcoming faith. And that's because of God's promise, because of God's power, his purchase and his prayer, and also because of God's predetermination. Secondly, we affirm the relationship of the redeemed. We know we are of God. We know that we're different from the world. We know that we've been delivered by God. We know that we are directed by God. We know that we desire God. And we know that we are destined for God. And we also know that the entire world is entrapped, ensnared uh, by Satan. And we know that they're held captive by his will and they will do his will. And they're deceived in that. That they have no desire to, to free themselves from it. The worst part about Satan's deception and those that are under Satan's control is that people are willingly deceived. They don't have a desire to be delivered from his kingdom. And we also know that they're doomed. And though the Bible is ever so clear about this, that there is a broad way that leads to destruction, yet these people are traveling that broad road without any care that they are. They're headed for one sure destination, and that's the fires of an everlasting hell. John says, the whole world lieth in wickedness. Well, that brings us then to the subject of tonight's discussion, and that is our third and final point in 1 John, and that is we affirm life in the Lord. Verse number 20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding 
that we may know him that is true and we are in him that is true, even in his son Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Now I want you to notice how in this verse that John gives a composite view of salvation. He affirms, first of all, that we have received divine revelation. He says, we know the Son of God is come. And isn't that how he began the letter? He's summarizing the theme, and he goes back to the very beginning. The argument of the Gnostics were that they were against the incarnation, that their argument is that God cannot inhabit a physical body. But John's affirmation is different. He said, that which is from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father, and was manifested unto us, that which we have seen and heard, declare we unto you, that ye ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father, and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Christ. Jesus Christ was from the beginning. He was with God. He is God. He became incarnate. And John and the apostles were convinced of that because they saw him with their eyes. They heard him with their ears. They touched them with their hands. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. He's the manifestation of the Father. And that's the way that we know that God is real. God is real and personal. If not for that, then we would be stuck with an impersonal God, much like the Greeks and the Romans believed. Or we would be stuck with a demanding, exacting, and crushing God like the Jews had, what they thought God was and had no compassion for them. But in Jesus, we find the true character of God. We see his love and we see his compassion. We see his mercy in action because we've experienced his saving grace. So we know that he's the true fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that said that he would bind up the brokenhearted, that he would heal us of our diseases, that he would bear our sorrows, he would be bruised for our iniquities, that our sins would be placed upon him and he would die for those sins. And the Gnostics knew no such things about Christ because they insisted that God cannot die on a cross. But John's affirmation is different. He says, we know the Son of God is come. And then he goes further. He says, we know the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding. And that's the second part of salvation's progression. We start with this, that we recognize that Jesus is God, and we can't miss that. If we miss that, then we can't be saved. It's not acceptable to believe that Jesus is a created being. It's not acceptable to believe that he's one of many gods. It's not acceptable to believe that he's not coexistent and co-eternal with the Father. It's not acceptable to believe that he's not the great I Am of the Old Testament. It's not acceptable to believe that he's not Jehovah God. We affirm that he is God. And then that second step in that affirmation is to know that we did not arrive at this knowledge by human understanding. Not by human reasoning. Philosophy didn't lead us here. Education did not lead us here. We don't find this out on our own. This is supernaturally revealed. God gives us the understanding, and it's impossible for us to know it unless God should reveal it and open our eyes to that truth. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He denied the wisdom of the world in finding out Christ. He said the natural man doesn't understand the things of God. He says all these things are spiritually discerned. 
So it comes by a direct revelation from God. And that's what Jesus said to Peter when Peter gave an affirmation of his faith that Jesus was the Christ. Jesus said, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. He said, you know this because God has shown it to you. And so John says here, this is where we are. We know that this is true because God has given us an understanding. Now, there are some who say that all people have that capability, that the gospel is preached and people can receive it or reject it as they will. But isn't it clear that John denies this? The whole world, he says, lieth in wickedness, or the whole world lies in the wicked one. And he points out here that we are different from that. We've been enlightened by God. And we, we didn't believe because we were able to weigh the merits of, of uh, uh, the gospel and make a right decision concerning that. We were saved because God has given us the understanding. It's the same thing that you see in the book of Acts when it talks about Lydia. Acts 16.14 says that God opened Lydia's heart. Preachers don't open up people's hearts, and people don't open their own hearts. When someone comes and believes the gospel, or you have two people that come into a service, one believes and one doesn't, why is that? Well, it's because God has opened the heart of one, and he didn't open the heart of the other. He gives one understanding, and he doesn't give another understanding. And the same thing is true as Nicodemus. Uh, He was a ruler of the Jews. He had studied the scriptures. He was a teacher of others. And yet when he watched what Jesus did, he knew that there was something he didn't understand about him. And Jesus told him, you're not going to understand until you've been born again. You're not going to understand until you have been regenerated. Now do you see how that reverses the usual order that people put on repentance and faith? Most often what you hear is that repentance and faith result in regeneration. But the order that the scripture gives is that regeneration results in repentance and faith. And that order is changed because we'll never come to understanding until God has given us that understanding. We know the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding. And so that's the clear teaching of Scripture. The world lies in the wicked one and they don't understand. They've not been given understanding. But we affirm that we have it, that we're here tonight and they're out there somewhere because God has not given them understanding. And you ought not to think for even a minute that you're better than other people because you do understand. We don't boast about this and say, well, we're, we're superior people to others and, and we're people that have good sense and other people don't. We have good sense to believe. No, understanding comes from God. And we receive that understanding when we were enemies just like the rest of the people out there. So by his grace and his mercy, we understand, and that's the only reason that we do. Well, the next thing that we would look at here, then, is what has God given us understanding of? And that's another element in the progression of salvation. We understand that we are in him that is true. Now, it's not just that we know about God, and it's not that we believe there is a God. As James says, don't come in here bragging about that you believe in God or you're so enlightened because you believe in God. He said the devils believe also and they tremble. Now we have a different understanding in that we believe in the true God and we are in the true God. It's more than just believing there is a God. So that's the difference here. We're not confused about this. And it's not a matter that we just got the name right. 
You know, there are a lot of people that are worshiping or say that they're worshiping Christ and worshiping the true God because they got the name right. But that doesn't necessarily mean that you actually know who he is. We don't just know him. The scripture says that we are in him, and in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, the lady that sent me that letter said, I hope that you're not publicly deriding the use of incense in this beloved part of our Sunday worship. And I would say, she has the name right. She has one, she's one of those people that has the name right, but she doesn't understand the true God. You see, that incense is, is part of the, of, the, of the Roman Catholic Mass. And they do that so that the worshiper can engage his senses as well as his mind. And so this is what the Roman Catholic says. The reason that we have the incense, the reason we do these things, we have the Mass, why we have the hocus pocus, why we change the body of Christ into bread and change the... Uh, wine into his blood is so that the senses can be aroused so you can know him by senses that tasting the blood of christ you use the senses well we say all of that is the smoke and mirrors we've been given an understanding of christ we experience him by faith and not by our senses and you'll notice the last part of this verse says this is the true god and eternal life And this is another point of controversy. We've seen several of these in these last few verses. Some say that this refers to the Father, that in all three cases this refers to the Father. We may know him, that is true. That means the Father. We are in him, that is true. That means the Father. This is the true God and eternal life. That means the Father. And if it does, all of those statements are true. There's no doubt about that. But then on the other hand, there are those that say this is the true God refers to the nearest antecedent of this. And the nearest antecedent there is Jesus Christ. Even in his son Jesus Christ, this is the true God. In other words, the true God is Jesus Christ. Well, that's also a true statement. And I think that's the correct one. And if that is the correct one, then we have the strongest statement of the deity of Christ that you can find in the Bible. This is the true God. Jesus Christ is the true God. Well, is that a plausible statement? According to John, it is. makes perfect sense that this is what he means because that would say that John is ending the letter exactly in the way that he began it. The first verses affirmed the deity of Christ in the incarnation, and in the end here in the summation... This epistle says the very same thing. Jesus is the true God. He is eternal life. And we affirm that. We affirm that he is the Lord. And the Lord is Jesus Christ. Now I want you to look at the last verse. And uh, sadly, we've come to the end of the epistle. Verse 21 says, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Amen. Isn't that an odd way for John to end this letter? How is this ending consistent with the rest of the epistle? John, as you know, has repeated his themes over and over again. And in this epistle, he hasn't spoken one word yet about idols. Search the whole book. You won't find idols mentioned anywhere until we get to the very last verse. So why do we come down to the end of the letter with no explanation? And John says, keep yourself from idols. Well, I would imagine that's a statement that needs more explanation. Perhaps we need a sixth chapter and then we could run this thing out to maybe a hundred sermons and we could talk about all the different things that John means about keep yourself from idols. 
Why is this stuck here at the end? Well, let's think about it for just a moment, and we'll explore a couple of ideas about it. Uh, John spent a good deal of time at the, with the Ephesian church. He was, the, he was uh, one of the pastors there at one time. And we know that by reading Scripture that Ephesus was steeped in idol worship. In Acts chapter 19, there was that uproar in Ephesus when the people were converted to Christ and it had a huge impact on the, on the sale of idols in, in Ephesus. Ephesus was the, was the center of worship of the goddess, of Diana, goddess Diana. There was this huge temple that was there, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And if you remember the story there in Acts 19, the silversmiths had a great business going on there, making all of these little silver trinkets of the goddess Diana and also of, of the temple. And when Paul began to preach the gospel of Christ, people were converted, and there was this huge uproar over that. So these, these were people that worshipped idols for sure. It, it reminds me of when uh, my daughter Clarissa was in school in Santa Barbara. We went down to visit her, and we went to the mission there in Santa Barbara. And uh, I, maybe some of you have been there. That, that's one of the probably the the most beautiful, all the missions that are in California. And uh, w- when you go there, you would be thinking, when you read something like here in First John, where are we going to find idols in America? You can't find anybody worshiping an idol in America, can you? I mean, you, you've got to go to the jungle somewhere. You've got to find a, some natives somewhere worshiping idols. But when we went into the gift shop next to... Uh, the Santa Barbara mission there, it was filled with idols. You could shop among the idols and buy all the idols that you wanted to. I think that there's a a Roman Catholic bookstore in Santa Rosa. There was one, I think. I think I was in there at one time. I don't know if they're still there, but I remember going in there, and you could shop for idols in there. You could find all the idols that you want. So you go into Roman Catholic Church, you go into Orthodox churches, you find idols and icons. In St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, there are hundreds of those. There's that one statue of Peter that people go by and they rub the toe to get a blessing. And they rub the poor guy's toe and was completely off. They're, they're worshiping these idols. Well, we don't have that kind of hocus-pocus either. We don't have idols of Mary. We don't have Jesus and idols of the saints and popes and angels. We don't have this smoke and mirrors that says, well, you can have this idol, but you're actually worshiping the true God. So what is John doing here? Is he introducing something like this, that the thought here is these people are prone to return to their worship of idols, these little trinkets, and they take those and they put them on the dash of their chariot or hang them on the end of their keychain? We might suppose that John could be talking about other things that Christians let filter in their lives, um, things that take the place of Jesus. It could be the pursuit of your career. It could be love of sports so that on Sundays you go to sporting events rather than being in church where you should be, those are idols. And those things uh, become excuses that we put in front of God, and those are idols to us. And I say that not just for some, I say it for all of us because we have a tendency to do that. We, we will put possessions, uh, our car, our house, our education, sports, TV, whatever it is, you can make idols out of all of those things. But I don't think that any of that is what John had in mind. All of those statements are true. People could return to the worship of idols. You could have idols in your life that you make that take the place of Christ. 
But in in sticking with the theme of this epistle, I don't think that John is introducing something new at the end, but rather he stays right on track. And what he's telling us here is that idols are imposters. He means that a false view of Jesus makes him an idol, that a false belief system, a false doctrine, one that says that Jesus is not God incarnate, a doctrine that says that Christ has not delivered us from sin, a doctrine that says that we can be Christians and not love our brothers and sisters in Christ, those kinds of doctrines make a false Jesus. And if you worship at that altar, then you're worshiping an idol. So what does he mean by this? Well, he means that people worship a Jesus of their own imagination, a God of their own imagination, and especially Jesus, when you make him something that he's not, When you imagine Jesus to be something other than what he is, something other than what the Word of God says about him, then you don't have the true God any longer. You're worshiping an idol. And you know what most people in America have done with Jesus? They've created a Jesus in their own image. They have a personal Jesus that doesn't call them out on their sin. They have a personal Jesus that doesn't tell them to repent. And a personal Jesus that is a tolerant flim-flam that accepts everybody no matter what they do. Jesus is perfectly happy with their lifestyle. He doesn't require anything from them. And folks, that is not the God of the Bible. It's not any different than going out in your backyard and erecting the 90-foot image that Nebuchadnezzar told the children of Israel to bow down to. It's not any different than just going out there at the sound of the cornet, the flute, the harp, the psaltery, the sackbuck, and the dulcimer that you bow down before that image. It's no different. When you have a different Jesus, you've anointed an image that makes you as bad as a Baal worshiper. So John is right on track with this in the ending of the epistle. He tells them that this God of the Gnostics is not really God at all. Some tomfoolery that says that your body can sin, but it doesn't affect you, your spiritual man, is utter nonsense. Worship that says that you can be spiteful to your brother and that you can live for only self is a worship is worship of an idol. It's not worship of God. You see, you have to have the Jesus that's in the scriptures. You can't change it around. You can't change it to say what you want to say and still worship him. You can't have a mass in the smoke and mirrors and call that true Christianity. You can't say that Jesus was created, and you can't say that he is a God, but not the only one and true God. And you can't say that everybody can find their own path to God, that all paths to God are equal. That's a false God. You can't say that truth is relative. There's one truth, there's one way to heaven, and Jesus Christ is that way. And there are truths that are found in the scripture about him that are firm. They are axioms. And you have to affirm them solidly, without reservation, unreservedly, or else you're left with nothing other than what Paul called a dumb idol. So John says, keep yourselves from idols. And that word keep means to guard, means to guard yourself that you don't fall into Satan's trap and departing from the living God. Now I want to close tonight with an illustration that was given by Stephen Cole. I think it's appropriate. He said, a Newsweek article many years ago told about how treasure hunters looking to make a huge profit were stealing rare idols from the Hopi reservation. 
The worst theft happened in 1978 when looters took four ancient stick figures representing the most sacred deities of the Hopi religion. Without the idols, there could be no Hopi rituals, the article stated. And without the rituals, the tribe's spiritual life was in danger of extinction. A tribal leader explained that these ceremonies bring blessings in rainfall, bountiful crops, good health, and long life. That is being lost to us. What a sad description of idolatry. You make up your own gods and then use them to get what you want. The problem is these gods may be stolen and your way of life is destroyed. If it can be taken from you, it isn't the true God. Make sure that even if you claim to follow him as a born-again Christian, you don't fall into the idolatry of using him to get what you want or accepting the parts of him that you like and rejecting the parts you don't like. That is no different than pagan idolatry. Little children implies that we are vulnerable and weak. Guard yourselves from idols. So people do that. They, they have their strange ideas about Jesus and they're all wrong and they have made an idol that they worship and he's not the true God of the Bible at all. They got the name right, but they don't have the same Jesus. Well, that concludes our study of First John. And I, I hope that you've gained some more assurance of your salvation through this. If you pass the test that John gives us here, the doctrinal test, the moral test, and then the social test of Christianity, if you pass all those tests, then you can be sure of this. You are in the true God, that you know the true God, and that you have eternal life. And we should all, hopefully, have reached the right conclusion about our own lives, that we do know the true God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this night you've given us. We thank you, Lord, for this study that we've had over these many, many months. What a great privilege and opportunity that it's been for us to see how the Apostle John develops his arguments as he talks about the one true living God. Lord, I do pray that every one of us can reflect on what's been learned and, and look at, back at the tests that have been that have been given here and that we would know that we passed those tests and we have full assurance that we they're saved and and they were living uh, by this by the examples that John has given us here and I pray Lord that every one of us has full confidence of our salvation so Lord bless us we thank you for this and we look forward to the to the next time that we get to study and as we take up a new a new book of the Bible and Lord we just look forward to that in Jesus name we pray amen